0: Hello, my name is Hyun the chair of Biomedical Ethics Society, and you are listening to the MedPi podcast, the fortnightly podcast where we discuss medical ethics, groundbreaking medical news, and new biological research. Before we move on to the actual discussion, I would like to introduce our guests for today. Kiri, do you mind introducing yourself?
1: Um, I'm Kiri Irto, the secretary of the society. Hello,
2: my name is Jiho, and I'm a member of the society.
1: And so today,
0: we'll discuss about four principles of medical ethics and evaluate the real-life medical issues based on these four principles. Autonomy, justice, beneficence, and non-maleficence are regarded as four principles of medical ethics. Autonomy means patients have autonomy of thoughts, intention, and action when making this decisions regarding healthcare procedures. In order for a patient to make a fully informed decision, he or she must understand all, all risks and benefit of the procedure and the likelihood of success. Justice in medical ethics means the healthcare provider must consider four main areas w- when evaluating justice, which are fair distribution of resources, competing needs, right and obligation, and potential conflict with established legislation. Beneficence in medicines means procedures should be provided with the intent of doing good for the patients involved. And lastly, non maleficience requires that a procedure does not harm the patient involved or others in society. And now we're going to move on to the case study evaluation. Kiri, could you please introduce the issue you have found out?
1: So the issue that I'm going to present is the issue about the genetic modification of Babies. Well, Dr. Kevin Smith has claimed that in modern society, it is possible to genetically edit the human embryos, and that it is a ethically sound attempt that could be available to the general public in less than two years. Last year, Chinese scientist Professor He Jiankui claimed to have created the first genetically edited baby. The Chinese government. Took the position that he has acted illegally in the pursuit of fame and per- fortune. However, these kind of attempts are made in the various societies, and it is no longer a faraway future where this would be available in every country. In 2017, for example, scientists have edited DNA in human embryos which have been donated by a couple who no longer needed them for IVF for the first time in UK in order to evaluate this case using the four principle of medical ethics I should firstly say that this situation is completely against the um, notion of autonomy the patient who is being genetically modified the embryo is yet to develop a full identity and mind that they cannot have the autonomy in thought, intention, and action that is making decisions regarding their own health and the future. Even though this may be desirable to parents, we must consider that the prime subject of this genetic modification is the child himself, himself or herself who is going to be living with this modified gene. The second is justice. It is very hard to imagine this kind of technology being available to everyone in need. There are many competing needs for this genetic modification. For example, genetic diseases. And there is also a purpose of pure desire, such as desire towards beauty or the desire towards intellect. And because this technology is highly likely to be only available to the wealthy, it is almost improbable to imagine that this technology would be used for the ones with genetic impairment rather than the ones who simply need some better features in order to compete in the society. Beneficence is an ambiguous matter because as persons, we don't want ourselves and our identity to be modified, and in that way, this is malicious. However, at the same time, we desire better features and better genetic qualities in order to outcompete other people as the features of primates that have evolved according to sexual selection. And the last one is non-maleficence. Here, the technology itself does not involve a malfeas, as far as we assume that it would be used for the better of the modified embryo. However, there is still a possibility that people would try to use this for research and actually modify the embryo for the worse to have certain genetic symptoms that is not well researched enough in order to find cure for those who would give them fame and fortune.
0: Okay. Oh, great. Thank you very much, Kiri. Jiho, let's move on to your case now.
2: Now, recently, a new rising method of finding vaccine is being judged of its ethical aspects. To briefly introduce this study, People are first vaccinated with experimental vaccines, then deliberately exposed to pathogens and monitored to see if the vaccines protect them against infections. These studies sometimes involve infecting people with deadly diseases, such as malaria. Uh, in such case, however, researchers are, are especially careful to minimize the risk by ensuring study participants and provide with their treatments. From a scientific perspective, this method is considered to be faster and less expensive than other kinds of vaccine research. Thus, some scientists are promoting this method, expecting it to be a groundbreaking paradigm shift, increasing the probability of prevention for the future diseases. But looking at this case, it made me ask, then who should be infected? For this case study, I would like to approach on the ethical aspect, using the four principles of medical ethics, firstly, on the point of non-maleficence, it does not definitely affect. Uh, it does definitely affect harm to the people who are being experimented, because there are risks and side effects, and might not only affect the person who is being infected, but their family and other people, which might be also spreading, and therefore. We need to see that if the beneficence outweighs the non-maleficence, which other means that the small people sacrificing for the more uh, sacrificing for more people for the future, and this would lead to the second point of beneficence for the society and the human race. Um, the we should see if that outweighs the benef- The beneficence or outweighing the non-maleficent. And on an economical perspective, it costs us, as I referred before, and faster. Thus, it is actually beneficent than other ways of finding vaccines. But for the society, if the vaccines are found by the project, a lot of people's lives are going to be saved. And as I gave an example of malaria, annually there's about one million people of uh, one million people who are being uh, affected by the uh, affected by malaria. And they could be saved by uh, the vaccine finding, and it could also prevent other diseases. And only because there's only few people who might be uh, participating such activity, there be only low and efficient rate of people being suffered, and this would lead to the third point of justice, and. It raises that, is it right to infect a healthy person even though it may not be able to reverse? And which other means that they might not be able to find the vaccines? And also, as I asked before, who should suffer? And how can we measure which people to live and who should die? And um, recently, by research, we found out uh, the majority of the people who are actually being infected by uh, such uh, experiments are people from the MEDC countries uh, and developing countries and these people are actually self participating and self volunteering which leads to the fourth point of autonomy uh, autonomy, and um, it should be the person's choice and the person's choice that either they should contribute or not so if the person has the capacity to decide whether or not to participate in such uh, activity and then the researchers should respect what they want. And if they're trying to help the world or contribute towards it, uh, I think it is um, ethical to, uh, for people to actually contribute to this society and this case study.
0: Thank you very much, Jihyo. Lastly, I will discuss a case where a woman who inherited the gene of Huntington's disease sues National Health Service. A woman who was not informed that her father had a fatal inherited brain disorder has told the High Court that she would have an abortion if she had known at the time of her pregnancy. Therefore she is suing three NHS trusts saying they owned a duty of the care to tell her about her dad's Huntington's disease. Any child of someone with the condition has a 50 chance of inheriting it. And doctors suspected the diagnosis after her father shot dead her mother and was detained under the mental health act. The father tested positive for the Huntington disease, which is caused by a faulty gene and leads to the progressive loss of the brain cell affecting movement, moods, and thinking skills. It can also cause uh, aggressive behavior as well. She, he told doctors that he did not want his daughter told about his diagnosis fearing she might kill herself or have an abortion if she found out. The claimant is known as ABC in order to protect the identity of her own daughter who is now nine. ABC only found out about her father's her father had Huntington's disease a progressive incurable condition four months after giving birth. At the High Court she said she had been told about her father's condition by accident. She said I was Utterly traumatized by the way I was told, and I had no family support, and I was left to Google the conditions. ABC eventually had a test and found that she also carries a faulty genes. Her, her daughter, who has not been tested, has a 50% chance of inheriting it from her. The symptoms of the Huntington's disease usually appear between the ages of 30 and fifty and ABC, who is now in her 40s, toured the court I'm now the prime age to get unwell. The future is absolutely terrifying. She told the High Court that if she had known during her pregnancy that she has the gene for Huntington's disease, she would definitely have had an abortion. She is currently suing the St. George and the two other NHS trusts involved in the family care for 345,000 euros in damages. The question for the court was whether there was a duty to disclose her to her confidential information about her father against his expressed wishes. The court heard that after ABC had found out about her father's disorder, her sister also became pregnant. Philippe Hubbard's QC QC for the trust said ABC had asked the doctor not to tell her her sister that their father had tested positive for Huntington's. And Mr. Haver said it was a bit rich for ABC to bring in this claim for damages. This is because he said she could have told her sister in the time for her to have a termination, but that was what exactly she was complaining about, about for herself. ABC, at the time, she had been utterly terrified about the impact on her sister, adding that the situation should have been managed by her professionals. So to evaluate this case using four principles of medic ethics, the situation does not fully follow the principles of autonomy, since ABC was not fully informed about her inheritance Huntington's genes, therefore the opinions of the patients was not valued and the decision was solely made based on her father's express wish. However, if we look at the side of the beneficence, we cannot say that this situation is totally ethically problematic, since if she was fully informed about her disease during her pregnancy, there is a chance where she could have committed suicide or decided to have an abortion, which go against the principles of beneficence. But at the same time, it is doubtful whether the decision made by the health workers actually benefit the patients. After ABC was informed about her father's disorder in the later point of her life, she was utterly traumatized as she did not have any time to prepare the plan for anything. So even though the procedure was provided with an intent of good for the patient involved, the outcome totally terrorized the patient and attacks the non-maleficients at the same time. Lastly, to discuss the idea of the justice in this case, the decision made by health workers should be justified if they took similar decision-making process when dealing with a kind of situation where the negative outcome is inevitable in either option that they can take. Yes, so this is the end of our Med P Episode One, and if you have any comments to make, please contact us through the B- BPE Society email, bpe at, anal- at care. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll come back with our second episode after Christmas. Thank you. Hello, my name is Hyunsao, the chair of Biomedical Ethics Society, and you're listening to the MadP podcast, the fortnightly podcast where we discuss medical ethics, groundbreaking medical news, and new biological research. Last time, we introduced a concept of four main principles of medical ethics and evaluated real-life cases based on those principles. And today... We will be discussing big medical breakthroughs in 2019 since it has been a remarkable year of promise in medical sciences. The course for today are Curie and our new podcast member, Jiyu. you can you briefly introduce yourself?
3: Um, my name is Jiu and I'm PO of the society. Oh, yeah, great.
0: Thank you very much. And we'll start off by introducing a new tool to manipulate DNA. DNA editing is always regarded as a major medical advance in, 20, in the 21st century, and the most well-known concept is a CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing, which uses Cas9 enzyme and guide RNA as a basic molecules. It was developed in 2013, and this innovation has stomped its way into one of the most heated ethical debates ever to enter the scientific community. But today, rather than focusing on the issues with CRISPR-Cas9, we will discuss new DNA manipulating tool called prime editing. It is a new way of editing that could correct 89% of errors in the DNA that causes disease. There are some 75,000 different mutations that can cause disease in people, and the researchers say prime editing can fix nearly 9 in 10 of them, which is pretty amazing. It has been used to correct the mutation in the lab, including those that sickle cell anemia and tay sex disease, which is a rare and fatal nerve condition. Also, it compensates the defects of CRISPR Cas9, which were precision and accuracy. The edits using Cas9 were not always perfect, and the cuts could end up in the wrong place. And the researchers are currently in the process of checking the safety of its application, and the very first application would be diseases where cells can be taken out of the body, such as sickle cell anemia. And next, Curie, could you please introduce the thing you have found about the gene silencing draft?
1: So very recently, a first gene silencing medication has been approved for use by the NHS in England. NHS in England. It is called the National Health Service. Uh, it is short for the National Health Service. And um, this method of gene silencing, even though it sounds like something extremely groundbreaking and innovative, it is actually uh, it actually works by a quite simple mechanism and it also has a very specific target which prevents it from having a mass effect on the human humanity in terms of ethics. So this is a particular drug called Parterizan par- and it tackles a certain genetic disease called amylo- di- amyloidiosis. Amyloidosis is a disease where um, a protein called amyloid, which just bundles together and replicates it in a normal rate, interferes with the normal organ tissues and also the nerve system that causes fatal symptoms, pain, and eventually, mostly, leads up to death. It was previously untreatable, however, this new technique of gene silencing, instead of trying to tackle the amyloid, gets into the cells and destroys the messenger RNA which transcribes from gene in order to pre, uh, pre- the amyloid protein and as a result, the amyloid protein does not develop from its primary stage and therefore it provides a new way for the people with this tragic genetic symptom to survive.
0: Lovely. Thank you very much. And Jiu, can you now introduce a new approach to cancer that was developed last year?
3: Okay. Uh, Cancer immunotherapy has remarkably developed through years. Now the medicine uses a patient's own immune system to fight cancer, more than a half of patients are surviving a deadly skin cancer named melanoma that was just considered untreatable just a decade ago. Today, I want to introduce a cancer therapy called tumor agnostic therapy, which is also called tissue agnostic therapy. Tumor agnostic therapy is a type of therapy that uses drugs or other substances to treat cancer based on the cancer's genetic And molecular features without regard to the cancer types or where the cancer started in the body. Simply it means that they don't care where the cancer is growing in the body as long as it has a specific genetic abnormality inside. There are several types of tumor agnostic therapy and one type is larotractinib. Larotractinib was designed to target tumors with a genetic abnormality known as an and TRK gene fusion the first patient to use it was Charlotte Stevenson a two-year-old from Belfast she had a cancer on her body's connective tissue which is which is called infantile fibrosacroma the tumors could be found in Charlotte's sarcoma as well as some brain kidney thyroid and other cancers the drug had significant effects on her body and Charlotte is now growing well and living a normal life after, after she took the
1: drug.
0: Oh, Great, thank you. Uh, Kiri, could you please tell us about mind-reading exoskeleton that you have found out?
1: Mind-reading exoskeleton is basically a combination of several devices that is used to aid people who have paralysis. And one of those devices is the detector for electrical signals that instructs the physical movements of our body which is transplanted into our bla- into the brains of the patient. The other is the actual exoskeleton which is kind of attached to the body and not particularly installed into it in order to move the body without the actual muscles being activated. And The way it works is the detector of the signals interprets the electrical impulses in our brain in a way that becomes coded as the instruction for the exoskeleton part in order to move the exoskeleton according to the patient's will. However, there are some concerns, ethical concerns, that are linked to this kind of technology because even though it can be very useful for the the patient, when this mind-reading technology develops, it can interfere with people's individuality and autonomy and also privacy of their thoughts. The primary concern right now might seem like privacy. However, later on, it can also work as a sender of the signals and create the electrical signals in our brain that instruct our body to do something instead of giving out instructions which would become a serious ethical concern, and especially if it is being used by the government system or like the larger organizations that can use this kind of technology to masses of people.
0: Oh, great. Thank you very much. It was really interesting. And the next thing I want to talk about is phage therapy. So phage therapy is a therapy using the bacteriophages to treat ph- pathogenic bacterial infection. So in a simple phrase, it is treating a bacterial infection with virus. So phage therapy was never never a mainstream medicine since antibiotics are much easier to use and also is effective. But now phage therapy is having a rise due to the increase of superbugs that are resistant to antibiotics. In 2019, there was a chance where a patient's life was saved by an experimental cocktail of viruses. The teenager's body was being attacked by deadly bacteria, and she was given less than a 1% chance of survival. So basically, she had big, black festering lesions forming on her skin where the infectious infection was taking hold. And she ended up in extensive care when her liver st- started failing with large colonies of bacteria forming in her body. But the doctors at the Great Ormond, Ormond Street Hospital attempted an untested phage therapy which viruses give it which which uses viruses to infect and kill bacteria. And the therapy saves her from the deadly bacteria. And lastly, do you please tell us about the development of a brain implant implant?
3: the scientists have developed a brain implant that can read people's mind and turn their thoughts to speech. People who are suffering voice loss from modern neuron disease, brain injuries, throat cancer, and Parkinson's disease might get help from this invention. First, an electrode is implanted in the brain to collect electrical signals that controls the lips, tongue, voice, box, and jaw. Then the computer simulates how the movements in the mouth and throat would form different sounds, and the speech comes out from a virtual voice vocal track. However, this technology is not yet perfect because the resulting voice pronunciation is not so clear, so it is heard like the person is mumbling and it is hard to understand the meaning properly. As the new technology is only in early stages, I think the real application should be considered more on safety and some ethical problems.
0: Oh, lovely. Thank you very much. And this is end of our Mappy episodes two. And if you have any comments to make, please feel free to contact us through BP society email. And thank you very much for listening. And we'll come back with our third episode next week. Oh yeah. And one last message from me. If you want to join our Mappy podcast recording, please contact Hyunsa in your 12 via email. Thank you very much. Hello, my name is Hansa, the Chair of Biomedical Ethics Society, and you are listening to the MedPay podcast, the fortnightly podcast where we discuss medical ethics, groundbreaking medical news, and new biological research. So last time we discussed the big medical breakthroughs in 2019 since it has been a remarkable year of premise in medical science. And the theme of today is National Health Service, which is widely known as NHS England. The crews for today are Kiri, Jiho, and Jiu, and Everyone, thank you for joining us. <laughs> and we are addressing this topic since NHS is the largest single payer healthcare system in the world. And over, over the last few weeks, lots, lots of issues have been raised in regards to NHS, such as pioneering cholesterol bursting jab and NHS facing the wor- worst hospital waiting times. And Jiho, can you provide us with more details about the National Health Service?
2: Yes. Now firstly, introducing the NHS, it is a publicly funded healthcare system in the UK and as the NHS stands for uh, the National Health Service, it refers to the government funded medical and health care service that everyone living in the UK can use without being asked to pay full cost of the service. Um, to give some examples, visiting doctors or nurses, having clinical surgeries and seeing a midwife if you're in the middle of the pregnancy. Are, thus, are the things that you can do with the free NHS system. And now to explain the founding principle of the NHS, it it is really important that the NHS system is funding the whole process to be free at the point of need. And then um, this may raise a question, can this new system, the UK, sustain, sustain this? And where's the money coming from? Um, To answer this question, it is known that most of the money is collected through the UK residency paying taxes, and regular continuous income um, from the taxes would sustain the NHS NHS budget. To introduce the NHS structure, um, for the first few decades, um, the structure was considered to be a tripartite system which the first part, the hospital service, organized into re- regional hospital boards and change of administ- administration. And the second part, the primary care, which includes the GP, and the last part would contain the community service, including maternity, child welfare, and vaccination. And um, after a few decades now on, the structure has changed, and the Thatcher government has responded way Uh, response was to introduce the concept of internal market which is still governs the NHS today and the NHS and the Community Care Act of 1990 gave the regional health authorities budget which to buy health provision from the hospital and other health organizations putting the hospital in competition with uh, each other to sell their services and in 2003 the labor government have introduced the payment by result which the NHS bodies are allocated money based on how many patients they see.
0: Oh, thank you very much. I can see you, that you have put a lot of time researching. And, do you can you tell us about the current challenges that the NHS are
3: facing? Yes, I would like to introduce some several challenges about facing the NHS and some brief explanation about it. And first. I would like to tell you about aging and growing population. Since the creation of NHS the life expectancy of people has increased about 13 years. This is a positive news that people have achieved huge success on medical advances but it is also a bad news that the cost on caring and welfare also increased. Older people cost more than younger people in NHS as they are more likely to visit hospitals and need more special treatment than younger people. As the life expectancy grew, the demand for treatment also grew, and it caused more strain on the NHS and its resources. Second, I would like to introduce about lifestyle factors, such as poor diet, smoking, eating too much fats, and drinking too much alcohol, which are rising factors that threaten people's health these days. Bad habits end up in disease and even death, contributing to the increase of financial cost to the NHS. (coughs) The toll from (coughs) smoking slightly decreased the rate of smoking, but (coughs) it is still a problem of cancer. And obesity and alcohol (coughs) abuse rate is keep rising, which causes heart disease, diabetes, and liver disease. Obesity and alcohol abuse is each estimated to the cost of 4 billion pounds and 3 billion pounds a year for NHS. Third, <coughs> I would like to introduce about antibiotic resistance. The antibiotic resistance is the ability of bacteria or other microbes to withstand the effect of an antibiotic. Antibiotic resistance increases the fatality rate, and it makes more difficult for people to cure the disease as antibiotic that has antibiotic resistance becomes useless and more and more different, stronger drugs are needed. Other antibiotic resistance is increasing in modern days as repeated and improper uses of antibiotics are being wider, which includes using antibiotics, even in viral infections such as cold, sore throat, and flu. First, I would like to introduce about medical and technological advances. The medical and technological advances are successful and effective that can save lots of people in a short time with less effort. But one problem is that they have considerable cost as it Part of extra 10 billion pounds for NHS. Lastly, I would like to introduce about lack of staff problems, which is caused by every factors that I imply. And as there are more needs for nurses and doctors to afford growing population, increasing diseases, and need for technicians for advanced medical technology and equipment. Vacancies of staff were being more severe as the time passes. In 19, uh, in, 20, in 2019, there were about 40,000 shortage of nurses and 10,000 shortage of doctors, and in total, 100,000 vacancies. These, the experts even claim that there is a national emergency and the government should provide the solution for it.
0: Oh, lovely. Thank you very much. You have raised lots of interesting yeah. topics. Mm-hmm. And Kiri, may I ask you how NHS differs from the current current Korean healthcare system?
1: So basically the main difference would be how the fund for the healthcare system is being raised. Um, for NHS, it is included in the tax, and therefore they don't uh, the civilians does not have to give a separate money to the government in order to get the health care. So it is known as the completely free healthcare system that is open to everyone, including the most economically weak. step. Kitchen World. Cover classes? Oh, you know, classes. However, in Korea, actually, even though it is known as almost the free healthcare, almost half of the fund is separately given to the government by the individuals, and therefore, actually, the government fund for individual healthcare is lower than the OECD average, and therefore, even though the Allocated budget for the healthcare against GDP is lower than England. The actual money that individuals have to give is higher.
0: Remember, it's okay. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> Remember
1: the quality of healthcare that individuals can receive once they are in the healthcare system is higher than that of Britain. For example, in Britain firstly the all the patients have to go to a general practitioner who has less of a degree than the average doctors that we go to in Korea. And they are the gatekeepers of the British healthcare system. So often because of this process the medical treatment that you receive is delayed greatly and also the number of medical visits that you can take is quite limited. For example in Korea, the number of visits paid to the hospital for a year per citizen is 14.3 times whereas in England there is only 5 and therefore we can interpret this as kind of a disadvantage in the British healthcare system. Um, One similarity is that the qualification for healthcare is residence for over 6 months in the country. However, the way this healthcare is given is different. In England, you are automatically included in the system. However, in Korea, you are legally enforced. So if you refuse the healthcare, then you can be punished by the government. Oh, thank you very much. I totally agree
0: with your point. I thank everyone for doing a lot of research in it. And This is the end of our Mappy episode 3, and if you have any comments to make, please feel free to contact us through BP Society email. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll come back with our third episode after Lunar New Year break. Great, thank you. Hello, my name is Ten the chair of Biomedical Ethics Society, and you're listening to the MADP podcast, the fortnightly podcast where we discuss medical ethics, groundbreaking medical news, and new biological research. Today, we have come up with the topic of the coronavirus since it is a huge thing going on right now. WHO declared a public health emergency around 10 days ago, and currently around 900 deaths were reported at this point. So before we move on to the actual discussion, I would like to introduce our new crew for the podcast, Kelly. Could you please briefly introduce yourself?
4: Oh, hello, my name is Kelly, and I'm a new member of this EP Society, and I'm going to explain about what is upon <laughs> Yeah, thank
0: you very much. So the first question we want to address is, what is the novel coronavirus? So coronaviruses are the family of hundreds of viruses that can cause fever, respiratory problems, and sometimes gastrointestinal symptoms. The novel coronavirus is one of the seven members of this family known to infect humans, and they served in the past three decades to jump from animals to humans. Coronaviruses are divided into four genera, alpha, beta, gamma, and delta, and these little invaders are genotic, meaning they can spread between animals and humans. Gamma and delta coronaviruses mostly infect birds, where al- alpha and beta mostly reside reside in mammals. The example of alpha and beta coronavirus can be SARS and mouse coronavirus. And Kelly, what is so special about this Wuhan coronavirus?
4: First, it can have a droplet infection. For example, if I cough in my hand and touch someone else, then the germs that were on my hands will move to another person. Second the coronavirus can be spread from animals to humans. It simply means there are a high percentage of the transmittance of the virus, even though people cooked animals. Fourth, uh, third, it's a asymptomatic infection. If the patient does not show symptoms of an infectious disease, that is disease is asymptomatic. And fourth, uh, most people believe eating bats are the reasons why the coronavirus happens, similar to s- SARS disease. But there is another animal called a pangolin. Pangolin is very popular throughout China that knows it is extinct. Pangolin and humans have a 99% same virus DNA rank with them. That it is more affected than others.
0: Oh, great. Thank you. Jiho. can you tell us about the symptoms and the incubation period for it? Coronavirus.
2: Now, introducing the symptoms, mainly the virus causes pneumonia, which is generally a lung disease. And to explain that briefly, that's just inflames an air sac in one of the lungs, or even both. And um, that would cause physical symptoms such as coughing, fever, fatigue, breathing difficulties, and so on. And as previously said, it's spread it through a droplet effect. Uh, which is caused by the movement of the salivary and um, there are other hypotheses going on that this disease may be also airborne so Mm. we should be um, up to date and also previously um, the incubation periods were stated to be about 2 to 14 days along after exposure however um, recent news has presented uh, by doctors in Wuhan that the incubation period can also be extended up to 24 days. However, the WHO has still stated the incubation time is still up to 10 to 14 days.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, great. So, how severe is it compared to flu and pneumonia?
4: Flu so is the symptom happens inside the upper respiratory tract, but coronavirus happens inside the lower respiratory bronchi. Normally, you can have a headache, muscle pain, or cough if you have a flu. However, corona has a common symptom of fever, dry cough, short breathing, muscle pain, and headaches and diarrhea, and etc. The onset of the symptoms of flu occurs concurrently at the same time. However, the corona is funding at once and doesn't have any early symptoms. There is no incubation period for the flu, and corona estimates the average incubation period from 7 to 14 days. The flu can last from one week to several weeks before before it is cured, but corona needs a recovery period of about 13 to 18 days in Korea. Influenza can be diagnosed at the medical installation near the public health center, However, the new coronavirus must be diagnosed at the local public health care, another with the medical insulation current, currently, uh, currently this designated by the government. Mm.
0: Great, thank you very much. And Jiho, how is the current coronavirus similar or different from SARS and MERS outbreak?
2: Um, Firstly, um, the main uh, similarity to state is that is both is originated from China uh, which could be rooted as a wildlife animal, and, and this infection may be um, bats or civet cats, which are mm-hmm. inverted. And also, the root of spreading should uh, be similar, uh, treated similar that they both are spread throughout the gauntlet effect, as I stated, the saliva, the saliva. And also, the another similarities are the symptoms, which regards to the respiratory systems and their effects towards it. Mm-hmm and now um explaining some differences um the new 2019 new coronavirus death exceeds much more from the SARS fatality rates in 2003 and um the total total death rate mm. but the total death is different in 2003 however the mortality rate still seems to show that the SARS had uh, a much higher rate which shows about 9.6 mortality rate. But however, um, the new coronavirus only have still shown 3.8 mortality rates.
4: And could you
0: please provide us some info on MERS outbreak and its comparison with the coronavirus?
2: The, now, um, explaining the, sim- the similarities of MERS outbreak with the 2019 new coronavirus, um, the first thing is that the slow countermeasurements within the virus has caused much more severe damage to the whole, uh, the global as a global issue, and mm-hmm. both, as stated before, is spread through droplets. However, MERS is also ha- have some hypothesis that it was also airborne. However, it's not sure yet, and um, the differences are mainly that the originated, the MERS is originated from the Middle East and inferred to be camels, which has infected the human. Mm. However, as Corona said, uh, it, as the 2019 Corona stated, the bats are the major uh, victims, which seems to be the main cause.
0: Oh, great, thank you. Uh, Kelly, who is the, who is currently being tested for the coronavirus infection and how affected the current system is?
4: Currently, it is examined by the government report appointed medical specialists, and it could create diagnosis of suspected um, patients can lead to premature reactions, thereby reducing my transmission of infection.
0: Oh, thank you. And the next question we're going to address is, what is the difference between analyzing epidemiology and analyzing the real data collectors? So epidemiology is defined as a branch of medicine, which deals with the incidence, distribution, and possible control of disease, and other factors relating to health. And if we look at the case of the coronavirus, we can identify that the real data does not quite match up with the epidemiology of the outbreak. So if we think of that new infection suddenly happens with the symptoms, then the patient will now be able to test However, there are a limited number of labs in China that can test for infection. And they have limited capacity to do so. So what is presented in the data is lots of hospitalized patients with symptoms. This means that the test for infection is focused on the hospitalized patients, not a group of people who have symptoms, but not in a hospital or people who contacted infected people or people in their incubation period. So the main point is here. Main point here is that not everyone with the potential of the infection can be tested. So the number we are seeing may not actually represent the actual epidemiology of the new infection until the dust kind of settles down. Um, and next question is, who is vulnerable to this infection and which group experience a high death rate?
2: Um, Firstly, as this virus is treated to be also asymptomatic. Um, Families who are close and um, close to the infected person are the very first people who are vulnerable and um, thus must be isolated from the infected people. But also um, the groups that are considered to have a high uh, possibility of having death rates, comparing to SARS and MERS is that Um, and higher age group people especially 50 50 and over and also who do not have that much healthy body conditions regarding the antibodies in their body don't uh, are the usual people who have um, who lead to death and also an interesting fact was found that usually men were over over infected and Mm -hmm. even Died, died, from the, died from the virus, and the ratio was seen to be about 63 to 37 as men mm-hmm. exceed much more in the infected rate. And also, mm, people who were infected with other diseases in prior had another group of symptoms which showed a very fast rate of death and also mm-hmm. severe pain uh, within this virus.
0: Why do you think the males are more vulnerable to the
2: disease? Um, (laughs) I think um, that's an interesting question. (laughs) And um, the reason that males are usually more easily infected is...
0: Is your life. Gene related or maybe related, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're not sure yet. <laughs> okay, and let's move on to the next question. Tell uh, me, what is the efficiency of human-to-human transmission of the coronavirus?
4: I thought of, uh, five measures. Mm. And the first ones are um, who restricts visits to di- uh, designated infection risk countries, or who is the World Health Organization and the second is restrict entry and exit of public places Mm. and the third ones are wearing masks and gloves and the fourth ones are people who have been in the country of infection or have who have been in the path of infection are accounted for until an accurate diagnosis is made and the fifth one is check the guidelines from the government self-accounting if it's a
0: Uh, 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 okay good points and uh, the next question we're going to address is will this be to the pandemic not just epidemic Mm, and I would say it could be a pandemic but before we define coronavirus to be pandemic or not I think we should understand the precise meaning of the pandemic so in the minds of many the word pandemic is closely related to the 1980s flu pandemic that killed tens of millions of people. But by definition, a pandemic doesn't require the scale, that scale of destruction. And WHO defines a pandemic as the worldwide spread of a new disease. So in case of the coronavirus, there are some indication that it may, but we cannot say for sure. CNN stated that the coronavirus kills 97 people in one day. And currently, the virus has spread to 20 20- five countries, including the UK and South Korea, suggesting that it has the potential to become a pandemic. However, at the same time, it is found out that the transmission efficiency is not as high as the flu virus. So currently the biggest worry of the WHO is what the virus could do in densely populated low income country across the Africa and Asia. And the next question is, how does this novel coronavirus stack off to influenza? So in terms of the percentage, 0.05% percent of people who have had flu decision globally have died from it. So based on this figure, suffered, the coronavirus, which causes fever and cough, has 2.2% of the mortality rate, which is way higher than the mortality rate of the flu. But although flu kills a small proportion of those, who, those infected with it, it infects millions of people each year, which is why vaccination is recommended. However, there is currently no vaccine for the coronavirus. And like the common cold and the flu, coronavirus is spread between people in droplet, as Geo and Kelly mentioned, when sneeze or cough. And Jiho, where should people go to get the latest and the best information related to the coronavirus?
2: Mm,
5: it's going to be quite
0: controversial, of or- course. <laughs>
2: For my personal um, references, I have found some interesting websites and places that I could find the best information related to the coronavirus, which are not biased, mostly not biased. and They are firstly The Lancet, which is an official news reporting journal, which shows the general statistics and the latest infections and their symptoms shown and also the economics time which is another a global global news part which shows a different perspective from the lancet and not only going global but um and there's also other local news and places that we could approach from which for example there is a sea SRO which is an Australian health organization researching program which shows another perspective and the most important part is that we do not read only from uh, one part source of an article Mm -hmm. and claim such opinion but reading it in different different perspective and mostly not biased Articles are the best, so please don't rely on SNS. Yeah, great <laughs> point.
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you. And last question we're going to address is, is there a risk to the laboratory personnel for the infection to spread when they are handling the samples of the virus? And I, I want to say there are zero risk, and all the people working for the lab testing should follow the interim guide for the lab Testing published by the WHO. And you can easily assess the document in the WHO webpage. And it includes info on suspected case definition, specimen collection, and shipment, affected uses of the global lab network- networking, and testing of 2019 and coronavirus in reference to the lab. Great. So, any comments from you guys about the coronavirus that we haven't addressed? No? No? Do you? No? Okay. So this is the end of our MathP episode 4, and if you have any comments to make, please feel free to contact us through the BP Society email. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll come back with our fifth episode next Wednesday. Let's start. (laughs) Hello, my name is Hansa, the chair of Biomedical Ethics Society, and you're listening to the MathP podcast, the Fortnite podcast where we discuss Medical ethics, groundbreaking medical news, and new biological research. So, before we move on to the actual discussion, I would like to introduce our new crew for the podcast. Nayan, could you please briefly introduce yourself?
6: Um, hello, I'm Nayan, I'm year 10, and I'm the new member of the BP Society.
0: Yeah, great, thank you. So, the topic we'll be addressing today is the opioid crisis, since it is a global issue to say, and it is now regarded as a painkiller pandemic. Uh, we'll start off by addressing the definition of the opioid painkiller and the reason why physicians prescribe them. So, opioids are a type of drug that is used to treat moderate to severe pain, and it is called opioid since it binds to the opioid receptor in the body. And opioid includes oxycodone, hydrocodone, codeine, and morphine. Unlike non-opioid painkillers such as paracetamol and aspirin, it is highly addictive and only available under prescriptions. The regular use of opioid drug, even as prescribed by a doctor or a medical professional, can lead to dependence on the drug. And medically, they are primarily used for pain relief, including anesthesia, and other medical uses include suppression of diarrhea and cough. And What do we know about the current opioid crisis?
6: So two or three decades ago, opioid pain relievers began to be widely used and prescribed, yet the understanding of the right way to use them and the consequences of drug addiction was not fully achieved. Thus, misuse of opioid pain relievers arose in the late 1990s. The crisis is still an issue, and according to the Health Resources and Services Administration of the U.S., over 130 people die each day from op- 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 opioid-related drug overdose. In 2017, approximately 47,000 people had died over a year. Furthermore, the number of opioid overdoses had increased by 70 percent from July 2016 through September 2017 in 45 states. The op- opioid crisis has threaten the economic and social welfare including the influence on neonatal abstinence syndrome which is caused by opioid misuses during pregnancy.
0: Okay, oh. what does, why does pain management is such an issue over the last ten to twenty years?
1: Um basically before the last decades the opioid was prescribed only in the situations of extreme pain there are debates on how this should be diagnosed but still the we can all agree that the use of opioid drugs on patients was extremely restricted to to their addictive properties True. however quite recently in 19 by the end of 1990s the medical medical Corporation. Yeah, a corporation called <laughs> Purdue Pharma has pharma has increased the range of patients who can mm. be prescribed with opioid in mm. order to get more profit, and there was extensive lobby between mm. this allowance mm. of extensive opioid prescription, and since then the Misuse of opioid drugs on the American citizen has been very extreme as the statistics that I was just told would show you. Yeah. And therefore, due to this misuse, the patients often become addicted to opioid, and it is very easy for them to fulfill their addiction yeah. by continuously demonstrating pain, no matter how extreme it is, to the doctors.
4: It's true. It's
0: such a huge social issue. And the next question we're going to address is what is the difference between opioid and opiate? So, an opiate is a drug naturally derived from the flowering opium poppy plant. The examples of opiates include heroin, morphine, and codeine. On the other hand, the term opioid is a broader term that includes opiates and refers to any substances, natural or synthetic, that binds to the brain's opioid receptors, which are the part of the Brain responsible for controlling pain, reward, and addictive behavior. So I can say, all the opiates are opioid, but not all opioids are opiates. Naya, all all painkiller addictive?
6: Um. Although some op- opioids such as oxycodone, fentanyl, and buprenorphine. Bro- bro- are prescribed under legal purposes, opioids are known to be highly addictive. If use of painkillers prolong for a long period of time, the body adopts to the presence of drugs. In other words, the body gets used to when painkillers are consumed even more than when they are not. This means that the body craves for them and it needs more amount of drugs to experience the same relief. As a result, the patient might be attracted to taking painkillers more often in more quantity and for a longer time. Besides opioids, painkillers are not necessarily addictive. In most cases, it is unlikely to be addictive, addicted if the patient takes the medication as directed. Nevertheless, the possibility of addiction differs from patient to patient and may depend on personal drug uses and family history.
0: Oh, thank you very much. Kiri, how do physicians normally diagnose severe pain? Are there any challenges or misconception in diagnosis?
1: Absolutely, sadly, there is not a current method to objectively diagnose I'm the chronic true. pain. The method that is most often used is just questioning and mm. answers. So the doctor will mainly ask where the pain is lo- located, how long it has been going on. If it has been going on for over six months, it is often diagnosed as chronic pain. Mm-hmm. And also, whether it is sharp or dull, constant, and occurs off and on. Um, sometimes a patient will be asked to rate the pain by using a numerical oh, right. scale, and giving quite a lot of details. However, no matter mm-hmm. how specific the scale is, mm. our
0: school does so that yeah, right.
1: It is almost impossible <laughs> to just. Diagnose pain yeah. in an objective way, and it becomes more of a problem when a person has an opioid addiction because mm. opioid is a really strong depressant that completely paralyzes your pain senses. Okay. And therefore, when once you ha- are addicted, it means whatever sensation you receive is mm. felt received as pain yeah. because you're mm. used to being completely numb. And therefore, those patients would very easily be diagnosed of mm-hmm. an actual chronic pain and be. Prescribed more drugs, mm-hmm. and the other problem in America will probably be the drug cartels mm-hmm. yeah. are prevalent. Um, apart from that, they do nerve conduction studies oh, to report <laughs> how well mm-hmm. the nerves are working when mm-hmm. the painful sensation is received. And there's to uh, choreography.
0: Can, can that be followed by
1: an addiction? The nerves. Yeah, because, I mean, it makes the nerves much more sensitive to pain Mm. due to consistent analysis. So even when you monitor their brain or test their nerves, they'll be sensitive to smaller pain, firstly, and they'll show actual connections that will signify pain being felt, and MRI as well.
0: So. Thank you. (laughs) And the next question we're going to address is why and how drug opioid overdose causes death? The major reason for death is the intoxication of the chemical, which leads to slow breathing, heart rate, and pulse. Also, the opioid overdose causes pinpoint pupils and blue leaves and nails you to low level of oxygen in our blood. And these symptoms can lead to the death of the patient like any other diseases and some deaths are injury-related, injury meaning the deaths are associated with the accidents, and some deaths are caused by suicidal acts as well. And next question is, what can we do to prevent this huge opioid overdose death crisis? <laughs>
6: um, education can be initiated Targeting overdose patients and other patients who received opioid prescription on how to use them properly and the consequences of misuse. Next, um, emphasis can be done to guidelines on opioid prescriptions to prevent overprescription of opioids for chronic pain. Also, campaigns can be held to raise public awareness on drug overdose death. And most importantly, if you yourself are dependent or addicted to opioids, you should reach out for help to reverse overdose and prevent it from getting worse. In the mm-hmm. CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Malosone, is recommended as a non-addictive and life-saving drug. Oh, great,
0: thank you. Um, are there any actions done by National Health Service or other health organization on opioid crisis?
6: Actually, there is
1: not much being done by NHS because opioid crisis is mainly a problem of USA. Mm-hmm. In UK, it has been referred to as opioid epidemic and it has gone on for a very short period of time. So it isn't as big of a problem mm-hmm. as in the USA, but UK is still not drug free, so there was a bit of a crisis. And NHS reacted by regulating the um, limitations for the drug prescription mm, yeah. prescription. And by providing more education on oh, yeah. the opiate on the opioid drugs. Mm. However in
0: I think that apply to all countries. Yeah.
1: yeah. Most of not, not really in America because of is the it? lobby system that is available. Mm. Though um the enterprises that make those opioid drugs, they often lobby the government a lot. Still, yeah, it is extremely hard for drug regulation, effective right. drug regulation, to actually be um,
0: the real thing. Yeah, in the country. Pass. Mm.
2: Uh, I have a question um, mm. with the NHS and how it's deferred with. U.K. and U.S. and the opioid crisis was a major thing in U.S. <laughs> However, looking at the system of N.H.S., the N.H.S. provides free health service, and um, meanwhile, the UK, U.S. they need to pay as individual. But how come isn't it? How come is it not uh, much of a deal in the U.K. Because there, I think it's much more easier for regular people to get access to opioids, mm. wouldn't it be? no it was
1: it wasn't the problem of the healthcare system but it was more of the problem for the of the enterprises so in uk lobby is illegal and therefore it is hard to hard for the drug making companies to lower the regulation for opioid prescription and therefore the doctors just cannot give out opioids no matter how easy it is to access the doctors However, in America, the regulations are very low, which means it is hard to access the doctors, but whenever you access one, you can get an opioid prescription. Or in some cases, even for some years, you didn't even need a doctor's prescription in order to get an opioid drug. You just had to go to the pharmacy and ask for one. And the other problem is the extent this opioid cartels or drug cartels are widespread in the country. For America, the cartel culture goes back up to 1920s Mm -hmm. at the era of prohibition. Probably the history students would be learning this. (laughs) They just switched their product from alcohol to drugs. So they have a full manufacturing system. And furthermore, America is one of the countries, first world countries, where the um, bipolarization of wealth is very extreme. And there's a huge number of citizens who doesn't get re- that much of a legal constraint. And therefore, it is very easy for them to access the opioid illegally manufactured when they're addicted. Whereas mm-hmm. in UK, it is hard for them to access the opioid consistently, and therefore, they will have to get over the addiction in some way. Thank you. Yeah. Thank
0: you very much. <laughs> um. Thank you. Does naming painkiller as pain reliever will make any difference in opioid epidemic? Mm. Use of language. Because <laughs> currently there was a campaign going on about oh, the probably not. prohibiting the word painkiller.
1: <laughs> I did read the article. Mm-hmm. I think it is based on the superior theory of Language that changing the language is somehow change your perception. Mm. However, um, actually changing the language to pain reliever wouldn't really fool your brain to feel like the opioid drugs but, doesn't mm. remove pain, does not remove pain completely. Mm. It is just the strength of the drug, rather than your perception about it and the accessibility. Then, do you think
0: the camp? the current campaign going on about the changing the terminology is not really effective
1: it might show some effect but i think that would be just correlational not causal because when you have this kind of campaign going on people are more aware of the problem yeah, the people start to educate the children more mm-hmm. the general public more and therefore it was seen that this change in terminology is changing the effect of the drug, oh, yeah, that true.
0: Yeah, it's true. Really, it's like, it just spread out to the society.
1: I don't really think it'll work in America, hmm. as it did in the UK.
0: Because let's see how it, things yeah. go on.
1: <laughs> mm. More so because of the lack of public edu- quality to public education in America. I think The educational gap is said to be quite high. Education, are
0: pretty good <laughs> in America. Okay, let's jump into the next question. Okay. <laughs> so... Does the restriction on opioid prescription challenges the patient's right to have his or her pain managed? So this is a of ethical question. I would say it challenges the patient's right to get a desired treatment to an extent. However, one's right to make a medical treatment decision is not the only factor that we should consider. So the amount of opioid the patient can take is limited since it carries A very high risk of addiction and long-term side effect as aforementioned and this is for the benefit of the patient and the society as a whole. Also if we consider the justice side of the medic ethics, the amount of opioid the patient can take for a certain disease should remain constant to a great extent but I won't say it is hundred percent since it is always too important to consider the case-by-case analysis.
1: Can I just make one comment on this? Yeah, sure. This is the matter of free will being addressed. And in terms of free will, if you um, have access to that free will action of taking the opioid drug as much as you want, then after that, you will lose the free will to not use it. What do you mean by lose the free will? Due to the drug working on your brain. So... Like, you can manage your pain taking the drug, but you cannot manage your addiction afterwards. And that is to an extent the restriction on your free will,
0: oh. which would affect
1: your life thoroughly.
0: So you think that the restriction on the painkiller is necessary? Yeah. But in either. that sense? Okay, great. Thank you. And the last question we we'll are gonna address is, are there any side effects that restriction on the opioid pres- prescription can cause?
6: I've read this article written in September 2019, and it mentioned that regulations on the dosage and duration of opioid prescription became stricter. However, Mark Sullivan, a scientist at the University of Washington in Seattle, claimed that the only policies that have reduced opioid mortality are dosing limits. In addition, there are concerns that the restrictions were set without consideration of individual needs or an alternative medication. Also, excess limitations could not be effective but end up with unintended consequences. Limits on the dosage and duration of legal opioids may lead to the increase in the illegal opioid usage rather than reducing them.
0: True, I agree. And Yeah, this is the end of our MedP episode five. And if you have any comments to make, please feel free to contact us through BP Society email. And Jiho, do you have any comments to make? Okay. So thank you very much for listening, and we'll come back with our sixth episode next week. Thank you guys. Hello, my name is Hansa, the chair of Biomedical Ethics Society, and you're listening to the MedP podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss. Discuss medical ethics. I'm writing medical news and new biological research. I can hear some echoes. <laughs> so today we are recording the podcast through Hangout video chat as school is closed due to the ongoing coronavirus, and I hope it works well as our normal episode. And the topic we'll address today is pharmacogenetic, which analyzes how the genetic makeup of individual affects his or her response to the drug. So. Let's get into it. So, do is the pharmacogenetic? And can you provide us with some more details?
3: Um, pharmacogenomics is the combination of pharmacology and genomics, which is the study of how genes affect the person's response to drugs. Most of the drugs that are currently available in pharmacies or universal to everyone. But due to our diverse genetic makeup, certain people might break down medications too slowly or too fast or suffer negative side effects or have no effect at all. When Mm -hmm. doctors prescribe medicines, determining the side effects could be expensive, time-consuming, and delay receiving proper treatment in proper time. So, perma testing can identify variation in specific genes related to metabolizing or clearing certain medications from the body. Using this information, doctors can examine your genetic profile to predict whether a medication is likely to be beneficial or poisonous before you take it. The field of pharmacogenomics is now quite limited, but if it becomes more developed in the future, we would be able to treat wider range of health problems such as cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's disease, HIV, AIDS, and asthma.
0: Oh, great. Thank you very much. And next question we're going to address is what do physicians need to consider when implanting pharmacogenetic and clinical practice?
5: Say when implementing common function next. also to um, identify the patient group into four different groups where the drug have different effects to them according to genetics. One group would be where the drug is toxic but still beneficial. The other group would be the group where the drug is toxic and not beneficial. Mm-hmm. The other group is where the drug is not toxic and not beneficial. and The last group is where the drug is not toxic and beneficial. According to these different groups they have helped to change the medication that the group would take and they would have to prioritize them in the recovery, uh, on whether to change their medication or not. Uh, it's about it. There are different factors such as mm-hmm. the ethnic group, the gender, um, the weight, or other diseases, and the, uh, other genetic diseases might also have an effect on, on how to what extent the drug will have a strong effect. Mm. However, this also produces the controversy of whether the
1: Hmm.
5: Features such as gender and ethnicity also, um, uh, because features such as gender and ethnicity are also associated with the genetic distribution, it creates some controversy for the application form of algorithms in that it may be a form of discrimination. Um, that, uh, that, that.
0: Yeah, yeah, great. Thank you, and. The next question is, how do physicians apply pharmacogenetic test results to make recommendations for an individualized medis, medication management plan?
7: As ji has previously introduced, that said briefly, um, taking pharmacogenetics, doctors will be able to establish the variations of the related to the metabolized body, and medication from the body. And then, using the information, doctors examine the genetic profile, which allows the doctors to predict a certain medication, with, which would help or which would hurt before you take, take the medication. And for example, there's a specific gene in our body called CYP2D6, and CYP2D6 allows makes the protein in our body responsible for breaking down many different medications such as a medicine, such as pain And uh, for this example, codeine is uh, a specific example i like to talk about. And as cyp 2 d 6 breaks down, codeine converts into another molecule called morphine, mm-hmm. which actually relieves pain in our body. And some people might have variants of the cyp 2 d 6 gene, causing it to be less active, these people, also known as the poor metabolizer, can take codeine. It doesn't convert into morphine as efficiently effectively as the living thing. And another variant in the cyp 2 d 6 gene like might cause to convert codeine into morphine too quickly. And these type of people are called ultra rapid metabolizers. And for these people, even a normal doses of morphine would cause them too much morphine. Build up in the body. Therefore, taking pharmacogenetics tests would allow doctors to recommend the medication is different, individual, low risk and higher efficiency.
0: Oh, yeah, thank you very much. And the last question we're going to address is, what are the barriers and challenges of considering pharmacogenetic in patient care? And I would say, the potential barriers may include cost-effectiveness of the test, ethical concern over the use of personal DNA, and recurrent education and equipment infrastructure. So to understand the possible challenges, I think we should understand the aim of the pharmacogenetic in the clinical setting, which is to maximize the chance of effective treatment of a specific indication and minimize the likelihood of the side effects. So to address my first point on the cost effectiveness of the test, the more cost effective cost effective our pharmacogenetic test is the more likely it will be taken up in the clinical setting however the process of generating the pharmacogenetic test is not cheap since the cost for treating phenotype is a very expensive process and to talk about the ethical side the pharmacogenetic study in pharmacogenetic studies Patients are asked to consent to three separate aspects of the research. Firstly, the main clinical drug trials. Secondly, research involving a specific genetic test related to a drug effect. And lastly, unspecified genetic tests to be used in the future pharmacogenetic research. And in doing so, the patients give the sponsoring company the permission to link genetic research on their blood sample to the personal medical information such as details of their medical condition and family history and given the evidence of the inability of patients who have decided to take part in clinical trial to comprehend information about trial procedure or to recall information about the potential risk it is very likely that patients entering into pharmacogenomic related trials will will not have given very careful consideration to all potential risk and benefits of this additional research. And also, a number of barriers to clinical pharmacogenetics are related to infrastructure. And this includes the ethical and political framework, the re-education of many different groups in the health sectors, and the physical infrastructure for the pharmacogenetic tests. And I'll say these barriers are not specific to the particular pharmacogenetic test. And once the general infrastructure is set up for the single test, the further test will only require very minor adjustment to that initial infrastructure. But the problem is that making the case for this initial investment in the process of doing such testing raises lots of ethical issues regarding the consent and genetic variation within the ethnic group. Is there any further comments that you want to make? Oh. Bef- okay. <laughs> Kiri and Jiyu, how about you guys? Okay. And may I end? (laughs) Yes. Okay. (laughs) So this is end of our MadP Episode 6. And if you have any comments to make, please feel free to contact us through BP Society email. And thank you very much for listening. And we'll come back with our Episode 7 next week, hopefully. And I hope that we can go to school next week. (laughs)